I stayed away from the four T's, you know, the tenants, toilets, trash, and termites of single family rentals. And I heard about multifamily, like really large scale, hundred doors kind of deals where you could employ third party property management to do all the work for you. And that just made a lot of sense. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Sam Rust. Joining us today is Sandhya Shashadri. Sandra is an experienced hands-on apartment investor who I've known personally for a couple of years now. She focuses on acquisition and asset management of large multifamily complexes in the DFW area, where there's just a few of those types of communities. Sandhya has invested in over 4,000 doors as either a general partner or a limited partner, currently manages six properties in the DFW area, and has gone full cycle on several projects, exceeding projections to investors. Sandhya, thanks for joining us. So good to see So great to be here, Sam. It's an honor to be on your show, and I'm very excited to have this discussion. So there may be some folks listening that are familiar with your background. You're quite active on LinkedIn and in various spheres. But maybe for folks who are coming across you for the first time, I've always been fascinated by your story. In fact, I've relayed your story to a number of people through the years as kind of what real estate can do for people. So maybe could you just sketch the journey that brought you into commercial real estate and where you are today? Like most Asian geeks, I have a strong math background and that led me to engineering college. And I followed the traditional path we're all taught to do, which is, you know, get a degree, get a job, keep working in corporate America and retire. And then that's the end of it. There's nothing else out there is is how we're raised to be. And Instead, once I started in corporate America, I realized very quickly with my engineering degree that it's always the business folks telling us what to do versus the engineers just execute. And so I wanted to get on the other side of it. So my company was kind enough to pay me to get an MBA. So that's where I got all my business, finance and stock market kind of knowledge. And once I became an investor rather than just a W2 employee, that's when I really started seeing my money multiply. And I always wanted to have something to do with real estate. However, I didn't grow up with a handy person background. So I always had this nightmare of somebody calling me on a Thanksgiving day with a leaky toilet that I had to go fix. So I stayed away from the four T's, you know, the tenants, toilets, trash and termites of single family rentals. And I heard about multifamily, like really large scale, hundred doors kind of deals where you could employ third party property management to do all the work for you. And that just made a lot of sense so that me as an operator would be more of an asset manager, looking at financials, figuring out how to execute the business plan and have people actually go ahead and do that for us. So I learned that at a weekend seminar and joined that mentoring program right away. And that's how I was able to scale quickly. Well, that's fantastic. And now today, you're very involved in several different projects. You're a thought leader. I see your name all over the place. What's your big passion today? What drives you forward? You've had a lot of success professionally, both in your engineering past and now in real estate. What keeps you moving to the horizon? I think just improving communities really gets me all excited. I'm like a PTA mom. I love to feed people. I love to see people smiley faces. So I love doing community activities at all my apartments. And so periodically we'll do things like a Halloween costume contest, a Christmas door decorating contest, school supply drive, Easter egg hunt, etc. So when you do that, right, when I moved to this country, I stayed in an apartment And I had $8 a week kind of student food budget, right? Which is just uh, crazy to think of. And 
I went to a private college in this really fancy neighborhood called Highland Park in Dallas. And I saw how, you know, the so-called well-off rich people live. And I wanted to bring that community aspect, that cul-de-sac feel back to my apartment community. So by doing all these activities at a periodic basis at our apartments, what we're able to do is we're able to build that community, get a connection between our property management staff and all the residents together. So the benefit of that, again, is that now people will tell us if there's any problem. If there's a problem resident always having weird stuff going on at their apartment, making a lot of noise or, you know, funny business at night, et cetera, we hear about it. And so residents keep getting their own family members more and more into these properties. I love seeing that because now I'm creating my own little Highland Park sort of neighborhood at every one of these apartments. For an investor, why does that matter, right? Well, we improve our renewal rates, right? We have a target of at least 60% renewals and you can improve on that, get it closer to 80% because when you have difficult economic times like we have right now, if you are able to increase your renewals, then you reduce your economic vacancy because you have retention. You don't have to spend all that money to turn a unit. Who knows if somebody has been living there more than five years, you might have to spend several thousand dollars to turn that unit. You are definitely going to be paying more in material costs. You might have to spend more than 10,000 a door to upgrade that unit. And all those days that you're upgrading it, you're not collecting rent. So, you know, if uh, what that means is, renew it, give them maybe a new fridge, a new appliance, a new fan, something like that, and get them to stay. That's what we're trying to do at our community. So by making people happy, this is what you are able to do is retain and help. Sanjay, I appreciate all that detail and that heart for community. We have a lot of those things in common. We're using a nonprofit ministry called Apartment Life that embeds coordinators into your communities and runs residential events. I'm curious for you, your boots on the ground for a lot of the investments that you make there in the DFW area. How often are you holding events? What's the cadence you try to hold to? How involved are you personally? Could you flesh it out a little bit for us? I like to do it at least once a quarter just to bring that feeling. But in between, our property manager has full authority to you know do something more often if it makes sense at that time. And we typically get it out of our marketing budget or we can always request a vendor to sponsor something for us as well. So in the summertime, you know, popsicles by the pool, as an example, versus around the holidays, we might have a couple of more events, right? Between Halloween and Christmas, we try to do something to celebrate both. And sometimes, you know, it's also Thanksgiving. So we were able to get a nonprofit to help us give out free Thanksgiving turkeys. And so we ended up doing two or three events at a time. And during COVID, we did a lot more as well because the community was feeling very isolated and scared. So at that time, we felt the need. So we dropped off, you know, goodie bags at their door with toilet paper and sanitizer and things that were hard to find at that time. You mentioned a lot of the classic tenant events, right? Like popsicles by the pool during the summer and Easter egg hunts and Halloween costume contests and door decorating. But is there anything that maybe is a little bit further off the beaten path that's a personal favorite of yours that you've done and has been really well received? Actually, they love the turkey, right? You know, free Thanksgiving turkey. But an interesting one we did was for Mother's Day, we handed out a long stem rose to every mom in the complex. And it's not a very expensive thing to do, but it was more of the thoughtful gesture kind of thing with a cute note attached saying how much we appreciate moms and moms are special kind of little card, you know? And so that was a cute and nice thing to do. 
during COVID, we had this truck come out and have a movie on it. And people were brought their own lawn chairs and sat socially distanced and watched a movie, a family movie. So that was fun, too. At one of our properties, well, actually several of our properties in, I guess it would have been May of 2020, we got connected through a set of events with a couple of farmers who grew vegetables and fruits for the local farmer's market. And obviously all the farmer's markets were shut down. So we ended up buying all their produce for a couple of weeks and putting together food gift baskets, fresh food for our community. And that was a phenomenal way to both help some local businesses, but also to just provide some good nutritious food at a time when people were fearful and and trying to sort what was up from what was down. Amazing. Love that idea. So we're in a slightly different environment, Sandhya, than we were a year ago. And I think your comment about trying to reduce turnover through these investor events or through these community events is really apropos. What other ways are you guys looking at as operators to find efficiencies, to continue to drive value for your investors and surf this wave of rising interest rates and debt markets becoming a little bit more challenging? I think a big one is always, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So once you have, you know, if someone moves out and you've got to go in and make that unit ready for the next resident to move in, you don't have to replace everything, especially if the unit is already pre-leased. Just go ahead and do a basic make ready. I mean, does your resident really care whether, you know, you've got a, I don't know, a stainless steel appliance versus black? Some might, but most of them don't care. Or if the countertop is really resurfaced versus granite, right? So don't pour a lot of money into something unless it really needs fixing, you know? Do the basic stuff, which is fix leaks, make sure there's no holes in the wall, make sure everything is clean, safe, and comfortable, like your air conditioner is working or your heating is working, right? Focus on the basic comforts that you have to give your residents. And then don't do some of these extra little things that's going to add up to an expensive upgrade. Don't spend 10K per door on an upgrade, right? If you could do it for 2K, that should be your plan and do it in-house through your own make-ready staff rather than contract labor because that's going to get expensive. I assume you guys use third-party management, is that correct? Yes, we use third-party management. A lot of people do you know, vertically integrated and have it in-house. But when we do third-party management, it's important to tell them, you know, don't feel like you're spending other people's money like the government spends money and you know, keep it safe. I'm sorry. You got to rein it in like it's your own money, like it's your own spending. That's a big one. And then finding all the hidden pennies in the couch, right? So people spend money on internet access, right? So if you can bring that in-house and you can offer that internet to your residents at a lower cost than what they would directly pay, that's a value for which they would be willing to pay you. So instead of just saying, you need to pay me 200 more because I got you a granite countertop and a stainless steel fridge. Instead, you could say, well, maybe you pay me that 40 or $50 for internet access versus paying $85 to that, you know, local internet provider. So yep. find ways to add value to residents in what they're willing to pay for. So washer dryer connections, having in-room laundry is very, very useful in the winter and in the summer for, you know, so people are willing to pay $50 more for that than $50 more just because you put in something new in the property, right? An amenity, you added a playground, so you want them to pay 50 more. It's like, yeah, it's nice to have, but you know, I'd rather appreciate those laundry machines in my... And I think what you're speaking to, Sanja, is just the importance of the asset manager paying really close attention to what moves the needle and what looked good in an offering memorandum to investors, but may not actually drive value to the tenant. And I think at times it sounds good that you do all stainless steel appliances and you even alluded to this earlier, but do tenants really care? 
And if we're honest, in a lot of the working class communities, they want clean housing. They want decent appliances. If they're black, white, or stainless, they're not really going to pay a premium, especially as the market shifts. We're definitely seeing more seasonality across the country, kind of a return to normalcy, actually. It's normal that third and fourth quarter rents would dip slightly. I'm curious what you guys are seeing across your portfolio in the DFW area. Are you guys seeing a return to that seasonal impact as well, where rents aren't just up and to the right at infinity? The rents, we're still able to get our pro forma rents across our properties. So we haven't really had to reduce the rents or offer a huge number of concessions. Again, we're focusing on renewals. So when we have send out those renewal notices, we're trying to offer a free appliance or fan or something to keep them. So our turnover is especially low during the holidays as typical. So, so far we haven't had to offer any concessions yet across my properties. Oh, that's fantastic. I think we're seeing the same thing is still able to hit those pro formas, which some of that goes back to conservative underwriting, right? You're not taking top of market and then inflating that by a couple of percentage points. But we are seeing broadly traffic is at more normal levels for this time of year. Rents aren't progressing at double digit paces in our market. So there's definitely... I don't even know if there's a lot of people that are throwing out words like softening or maybe recessionary or de-inflationary. I wouldn't go anywhere near that far, but just would say that it's a return to normal and what you typically see in the, the holiday season. And, you know, RealPage had a chart just now for October of 2022, and they said that 95.6% of renters paid their rent for the month of October for anything that is, you know, not subsidized, not low-income housing, for which renters just pay market rate. So that's really good news. We've got properties in areas like Irving, Carrollton, Garland, etc. And we're not seeing any kind of a slowdown where our occupancies are in the high 90s. We haven't had our property management come back and say there's any pushback on the renewals or even the new leases. So hopefully this will continue. And generally when there's a recession in the rest of the world, And the rest of the country, you know, Texas chooses not to participate. And if you look at the new companies that have just established their headquarters in the DFW area, it's kind of nuts, right? And sometimes there are some areas like Austin where I think the rents just went up way too high, right, in 2021. So there's a little bit of a reset on that to say, okay, let's be reasonable. So you might see the rent growth definitely slowing down or even rent slightly drop in certain areas like that where it was insanely high but I'm not seeing a slowdown yet across our properties at this time. When you look to the future, where do you see opportunity for growth in the next six to 12 months? I think there are a lot of deals that were on bridge debt from two, three years ago. We're all looking to either refi or exit. And unfortunately, the interest rates aren't great for a refi. So those folks are looking to get out. And in that case, we can help them by buying those properties at a rate that, you know, at a lower price than what we might've paid for it at the beginning of this year. So there is that opportunity. The second one is people who are just done executing their business plan and no longer want to continue their deals, which are on agency debt, you can get them on a loan assumption. So I think there's still opportunity, especially if you believe that five years from today, a building here in Dallas, Fort Worth, that's my favorite market, is going to be worth more than what it is today, right? I don't think that fundamentals has changed because of the job growth, population growth, diversity of jobs, and all the other economic factors that are moving here, right? And I'm not afraid of a 7% interest rate. It's just one more number in your spreadsheet and cap rates and interest rates kind of go hand in hand 
So when you're underwriting spreadsheet, instead of that number being a three or four percent like it might have been in 2021, you just plug in a six or a seven percent and you know at what price this deal still makes sense. I mean, my first home loan, I think I paid seven and a half percent. And then, you know, it's just another number in your spreadsheet. I think that there's a whole group of investors and and maybe even including us in that, that came of age, you know, over the last 10 years and start investing in syndications. And there's a lot of these rules that were trotted out about what cap rates do vis-a-vis interest rates. But the last nine months have made me go on a little bit of a research quest and just what did markets do in times of higher inflation or how has the treasuries and the average interest rate tracked? And there's some very interesting notes. One of the things that I was looking at was the early 2000s, post 9-11. There was a time where the cap rates were actually underneath the 10-year treasury for a sustained period of time. And that's something that you know, broadly, yes, the 10-year treasury is going to set the market for most of our interest rate. But it's possible, especially in an inflationary environment, for cap rates to not move quite as high or at least quite as fast, especially if rent growth continues to stay strong. It doesn't even have to stay as strong as it's been the last two years. But if it just returns to what it was in like 2015 to 2018, there's still going to be a lot of demand. It's going to be one of the safer assets around. We just look back at our underwriting for some deals that we acquired back in 2020 and 2021. And by the time we get to year two numbers, our rent growth that we actually projected was only about 2%, maybe 2%, some it was 3%. That's not a huge rent growth. It's always that year one, when you do your new leases and you turn over your tenant base, that you have that large rent increase at the beginning. And after that, it kind of stabilizes. So when I look at those numbers, I'm already at my year three performa numbers on some of my deals that are just going to be, you know, a year old kind of. So I'm not seeing a slowdown at all in certain markets like Dallas Forward. So I think some of that general information you see and hear in the news is not really applicable in specific markets like I think Nashville or Atlanta and Dallas, right? There are pockets there that are never going to feel the effects of the recession like, you know, in New York or California or Illinois, et cetera, is going to feel. I mean, the first rule of real estate of any kind is location, 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 right? And so there's a honey trap that the media will set for you. It says, look at these national statistics and then extrapolate fear, doom and gloom or happiness and euphoria, depending on what the statistic is, to your specific market. And the DFW market is a perfect example. I mean, the tailwinds there are just incredible. If you look over the last 15 years in the growth and what's projected to happen over the next 15 years, and that's a recession will change things slightly in in timelines, but it's not going to change the overall trajectory. There's much bigger factors at play than is the economy doing well that are driving growth in areas like Dallas-Fort Worth, like some of the Rocky Mountain areas that we invest in. And it really comes back to market focus. And I think we share that philosophy that if you pick those right markets with the demographic tailwinds, I I say this, I feel like every week to investors, but if you pick the right market and then you focus on downside, it's hard to go wrong. It's really about not becoming over leveraged and placing your chips on the right markets. I mean, wages are going up, right? I'm paying so much more for maintenance staff, property management, et cetera, than I was a year ago, six months ago, or two years ago, right? So I see wages going up all over. I see a lot of labor unions being able to win arguments with their companies to get higher wages, better benefits, et cetera. So 
I'm not seeing the kind of slowdowns that news media is uh, pro propagating just to scare everybody, at least across Dallas. And I think there's a lot of great opportunities coming up with loan assumptions at those low interest rates or, you know, the bridge loans that need some rescuing. Starting to sound a little bit like a shark. I like it, Sandhya. <laughs> I'm helping them, right? So I also yes. have deals on bridge that I would love to get rid of next year, right? If the price is right, you know, it can be a mutually beneficial arrangement. I've actually got a deal on permanent debt that, you know, we're done executing the business plan. And yes, today I'm going to get a much lower price for it than the beginning of 2022. But guess what? My yield maintenance penalty also has come down because of the rising interest rates. Somebody could assume that loan or they could get new debt. And either way, there's a pricing for it. So at the right price, it's a mutually beneficial deal. It's not really like you're kind of squeezing money out and profits out of the seller. And it's only a win-win for you and it's not for them. You know, they, There are many situations that are going to come up where it's going to be great for both sides. What's one habit, Sandhya, that you've developed over the years that has led or contributed to your success? I think persistence and always finding a way to make things happen. Like when I wanted to move to this country back in the day, right? My parents made 50 bucks a month in salary and I wanted to come here and college is going to cost me over 10,000. So I had to find a way. The traditional path wasn't going to work, which is, you know, take all my parents' savings and afford it. That wasn't going to work. So it's the same way with how the heck do I go buy an apartment building down the street when it costs tens of millions of dollars? Well, somebody's found a way to do it. And it's not just the rich people who have this money sitting in the bank. It's called syndication, right? So there's always a path. And if someone else's path doesn't work for you, you carve your own. Well said. That's the entrepreneurial spirit that we need more of in this country. Well, Sanja, it was fantastic to have you on the show. So great to see you again. You drove a lot of value today. I appreciate you. If investors want to learn more about what you're doing, where can they reach out to you? The best place is to find me on LinkedIn. It's a platform where I post a lot and I'm frequently there. They can also find me at my website, which is multifamilyforyou.com, where it's multifamily number four, Y-O-U.com. And they can just send me a quick message and we can interact from there. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Sonia, for joining us today. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Real Estate Syndication Show. I'm your host, Sam Rust, signing off. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 